I mean, AFib RVR is one of the most common rapid response calls that I go to. But this guy went from stable and talking to me to about to code really fast. I did not see it coming. I thought this is going to be an easy, like, give a little fluid bolus and a whiff of beta blocker or calcium channel blocker and fixed. But no, he just kept decompensating. And this is why many people call it flash pulmonary edema. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. This is a crazy case that did not go as I expected. If you're like me, you'd rather learn from someone else's mistakes rather than your own. Well, this episode is a perfect example of the phrase, hindsight is 2020. Let's dive in. So I get called to a rapid for AFib RVR. Upon my arrival, the patient is pretty agitated. Heart rate's in the 180s. We're having a hard time getting his blood pressure because he was pretty restless. The case was complicated because the patient was withdrawing from alcohol and was on CWA protocol, so it's hard to say if his tachycardia was just purely agitation or if he had something cardiac going on too. He had a history of heart failure, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation, so it was likely that both his cardiac history and his agitation was contributing to this AFib RVR. His other vital signs were stable. His blood pressure was high, 190 over 95, his respiratory rate was 24 because he's pretty worked up. And his oxygen saturation was 97% and he wasn't even on oxygen. So we gave him some Ativan, which didn't touch his heart rate or his agitation. We figured he was maybe a little dehydrated, so we gave a liter of fluids. Again, didn't touch it. We gave an IV push of a toprolol beta blocker. Again, didn't touch it. Well, then we gave amiodarone because it is AFib RVR. The amio brought his rate down just a smidge to like the 160s, 170s. So this was all over the course of like 20 minutes or so. And he's still just tacking away. He did have a little AKI, so we started giving a second liter of fluids. And that's when he started to get even more restless. Now diaphoretic, and his oxygen saturation starts to drop. So I put him on oxygen for the first time. He wasn't requiring it at first. I stopped the fluids, I listened to his lungs, and they sounded pretty wet. We quickly went from a nasal cannula to a non-rebreather, and now he's looking really bad. Blood pressure 200 over 115, heart rate in the 170s, oxygen saturation 89% on the non-rebreather. So we brought in the BiPAP, and he was just crashing so fast. We tried the BiPAP, but he just wasn't tolerating it, and his oxygen saturation was like tanking too fast. Once we realized that this was a flash pulmonary edema situation, 
also known as sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. I quickly started a nitroglycerin drip at a high dose and set up for intubation. So we got the endotracheal tube in, which immediately showed pink frothy sputum bubbling up in the tube. But his SpO2, his oxygen saturation, it did not improve right away once we got the tube in. It took some time for the nitroglycerin to work its magic and reduce that afterload to be able to move fluid forward so it would stop backing up in the lungs. Y'all, he was getting dusky on me even with the ET tube in. But within 10 minutes, he started turning around. His oxygen saturation improved and he was actually extubated the next day. So crazy case. The patient came in for a fall. Who would have suspected this? This is one of those cases where It's so much clearer in hindsight, but in the moment, we were treating the patient appropriately with the information that we had and the way the patient was presenting at the time. I mean, AFib RVR is one of the most common rapid response calls that I go to, but this guy went from stable and talking to me to about to code really fast. I did not see it coming. I thought this is going to be an easy, like, give a little fluid bolus and a whiff of beta blocker or calcium channel blocker and fixed. But no, he just kept decompensating. And this is why many people call it flash pulmonary edema. There are several things that I would have done differently if I had known he would go into flash pulmonary edema. I would have never given a beta blocker. I might not have given fluids. And I would have started nitroglycerin from the get-go for that hypertension. But I have chosen to let hindsight be my best teacher rather than my worst critic. Anytime you reflect back on a shift and wish you would have done things differently, Take note, learn from it, and be ready for the next one. Now, let's learn from my hindsight teaching experience and talk about sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema and how to manage it. So let me start by saying beta blockers and a fluid bolus are totally appropriate for a dehydrated patient in AFib RVR who's on room air with clear lung sounds. We had no way of predicting this patient would spiral down the sympathetic overdrive cascade of terribleness is called flash pulmonary edema for a reason. It appears in a flash and escalates very quickly. There are a lot of types of pulmonary edema, ranging from common ones like fluid overload or ARDS to very rare ones like high-altitude pulmonary edema or transfusion-related acute lung injury or re-expansion or reperfusion pulmonary edema after an intervention. But this specific type is unique in that it's brought on by that sympathetic surge that causes a terrible spiral towards death. I've seen this type of pulmonary edema called several things in the literature, hypertensive acute heart failure, that's a good one, and of course, flash pulmonary edema, but I really think the best nomenclature is sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema or SCAPE because the cause is in the name. So what caused that sympathetic surge in this patient? I'll tell you, it was multifactorial. Let me list out all the possible causes and you see if you can identify what about this patient's history or his presenting symptoms that contributed to his pulmonary edema. Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I want to offer more than just another course to purchase. 
Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I want to create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I want to teach live, address your questions, and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions, and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory, and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. So here's the possible causes of SCAPE. Heart failure, specifically cardiomyopathy, hypertension, often after non-adherence to antihypertensives, volume overload, either from misdialysis or not taking prescribed diuretics, acute MI, extreme anxiety, stress, or overexertion, or high levels of sympathomimetics on board, like IV epinephrine. So can you see how this is brought on for this patient? I mean, it's hard to say what came first, right? The chicken or the egg. Was he anxious, stressed, and overexerting himself as a part of his withdrawal symptoms first, and that's what caused the tachycardia? Or did he become tachycardic because of his history mixed with his withdrawal, and that exacerbated his anxiety? I don't know. Either way, he was tacking away in the 180s. Ever heard of tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy? Yeah. This guy already had some underlying heart failure. Not sure how severe, but then he goes to squeezing so fast that there just isn't enough time for the ventricle to fill properly with blood. So the amount of each squeeze or the stroke volume is reduced. Since the heart rate is so high, leading to decreased cardiac output, he starts feeling short of breath. The shortness of breath only exacerbates his anxiety, causing a dump of those sympathetic nervous system catecholamines, the fight, flight, or freeze hormones. And what did that dump of epinephrine and norepinephrine do to his heart rate and blood vessels? Well, his heart rate continued to go up, and even amiodarone couldn't break it. This increased heart rate further decreased his stroke volume and kept the blood from moving forward. So if it's squeezing so fast, it starts to back up in the lungs, making things even worse. Additionally, those sympathetic hormones also cause vasoconstriction or increased afterload, which makes it even harder to get the blood out of the heart against that high pressure system. So you see, the problem in SCAPE 
is not purely fluid overload like you would think. In fact, these patients are often intravascularly dry because fluid has shifted to the wrong spot. That liter of fluids we gave did not cause this. (laughs) And Lasix would have not stopped the spiral. The only thing to stop this is to reduce the afterload and provide positive pressure ventilations. But of those two, the most important is the positive pressure ventilations. So CPAP or BiPAP is preferred, obviously, to intubation. Both invasive and non-invasive ventilations can provide that positive pressure, but CPAP is better because it's non-invasive and it doesn't come with all of the risk and complications associated with intubation. So CPAP works to hold open those flooded alveoli and reduce dead space ventilation. It also decreases both preload and afterload, hence reducing cardiac oxygen demand. Win-win. And as an added bonus, it takes some of that worker breathing off the patient so they can calm down a bit and hopefully stop that surge of hormones that's making everything worse for them. But for someone who is hungry for air and feels like they're going to die, because they will if you don't act quickly, strapping a mask to their face or telling them to calm down doesn't always work. So do whatever you can to encourage adherence to the BiPAP. Give analgesics, give sedatives. Well the ones that don't depress the respiratory drive. Use those therapeutic communication techniques and help the patient focus on breathing rather than fighting the mask. But despite all of my interventions, this guy was not having it and we ultimately had to intubate. Like I said, intubation alone did not fix him. He needed not only the positive pressure ventilations, he also needed afterload reduction. Another way of saying it is we needed to widen the pipes so the heart didn't have to work so hard to pump the blood out of the lungs. So let's talk about afterload reduction in sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. The first drug of choice is nitroglycerin, and not the little dose you start with for your chest pain patients and titrate up till the chest pain is relieved. We're talking high-dose nitroglycerin. Some studies recommend 500 to 2,000 micrograms initially and titrating down once the patient starts to improve. For reference, one sublingual nitroglycerin tablet is 400 micrograms. I read a study where they gave patients two to three sublingual nitro tablets, which would be 800 to 1,200 micrograms under the tongue all at once while they were setting up for the nitroglycerin drip. So it's important to start high with this patient population because they're hypertensive. That is the problem. We aren't worried about dropping the blood pressure as much because they're starting out so hypertensive in the first place. Afterload reduction is the goal here, not titrating to chest pain relief. So nitro at low doses is a venodilator, but at high doses is an arterial vasodilator. The afterload reduction is what you're looking for. So you'll stay at that high dose until the blood pressure comes down to around 140 systolic you're not giving this huge bolus of nitro and going to lunch. (laughs) You're staying with the patient until you're able to safely reduce the infusion down to about 100 mics a minute or less. I want to add the disclaimer that a lot of facilities have guardrails on their infusion pumps that prohibit these high doses. So stick to your hospital's policy and utilize interdisciplinary collaboration and work with your physician and pharmacist to determine the best evidence-based dose for this patient. Okay, the last thing I wanted to mention is the use of beta blockers for this patient population. 
don't do it. <laughs> Beta blockers sound like a nice idea because they can slow the heart rate down, but the source of the problem is that high afterload. The pipes are too tight. So beta blockers will reduce contractility. And if the pump isn't squeezing as effectively, that could further worsen the forward movement of blood out of the lungs. So avoid beta blockers. Okay, let's summarize. What started out as a patient on room air with no respiratory distress, just a little agitated and tachycardic, turned into an emergent intubation. My patient went into flash pulmonary edema because of the perfect storm. He was baseline hypertensive with heart failure. He was stressed, anxious, agitated, and overexerting himself, causing a dump of catecholamines. That led to tachycardia and vasoconstriction. The combo made it hard for the blood to move forward, and it backed up into his lungs. The more fluid he had in his lungs, the more he freaked out, the more he freaked out, the more catecholamines dumped. His sympathetic nervous system kicked in to overdrive. And that is the classic story of sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. The treatment is twofold. First, positive pressure ventilations. So do whatever you can to make that work. And afterload reduction, usually with high-dose nitroglycerin. In my experience as an ER nurse, these patients, if managed quickly and effectively, can turn around really fast. They come in looking terrible, sweating, breathing 50 times a minute, blood pressure through the roof. But we start them on nitro, coax them into wearing the BiPAP, and they turn around, often in under an hour. It's amazing. So I hope that next time you have a patient starting to go down this sympathetic spiral of death, that you recognize it and know how to stop the spiral and get the patient what they need to recover and get home to their family. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. 